Cher Jeanne, cher Sylvain, il faut d'abord que je m'excuse auprès de vous d'avoir mis si longtemps avant de vous répondre. Pourtant, je pense souvent à vous deux et à la Belgique. Mais il y a eu la rentrée des classes et j'ai été très occupée. Et puis, on ne voit plus le temps passer. Voilà maintenant que je me rends compte que c'est déjà l'hiver. Ici, il y a énormément de neige. Et... A clip there from Chantal Ackerman's 1975 film Jean Dielman. It is the next movie in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. So the three-and-a-half-hour Dealman, it's been considered a masterpiece of feminist filmmaking since its debut. It consists of these long, static shots, a fixed camera of Dealman playing a housewife as she goes about her domestic duties, duties which notably include prostitution. But I would say, Adam, that isn't given any different of a portrayal than, say, folding the napkins that she also yeah. does each day. Absolutely. Ackerman made her feature debut in 1972 with Hotel Monterey. Dealman followed in 1975. It made its debut at the Cannes Film Festival. She went on to direct over 40 features, shorts, and documentaries before her death in 2015. She reportedly struggled with depression, and it was called a suicide by friends and European news outlets. She was 65 years old. I go back to some of the feedback from our recent poll question about three-hour-plus movies, and you heard some variations on the line Jacob Britton had talking about Olivier Assayas's Carlos, where he remarked that every time he watches it, he watches it in one sitting, and it just flies by. He said he kind of wishes it was maybe even longer. Did you have a similar reaction, Josh, possibly, to Jean Dielman? Um, no, I mean, if it flew by, then the movie wouldn't be working because the point, I mean, the most obvious thing you can say about Jean Dielman is the monotony is the point, right? This is, it's a movie that's going to immerse us in the daily routine of this woman played wonderfully. We got to spend some time on the performance by Delphine Sirig, um, in these tasks. And it's important to sit in them in all their monotony so that we get to know them as well as she does, or almost as well as she does. And so that we will recognize eventually, it's basically three days in her life, right? Mm -hmm. So we will recognize eventually when the pattern changes or shifts and we begin to be curious. Why? What's going on here? When the camera, you know, is, is it maybe 20 minutes in when all of a sudden we get a angle from in the kitchen that we hadn't had before. Yeah. I mean, it's like you, you sit up, you jump. It's startling. Right. And, um, and it's because now we get to notice new things. So, um, or how about that touch? And I forget, forget which day it is, but one of her routines is making the morning coffee for her son, Sylvain. And as she pours the cup for herself, she just leans back against the wall for a minute. And this is something she hadn't done before. She lightly and playfully crosses one leg in front of the other. Mm -hmm. And And it's almost, it's telling you like these 15 seconds belong to her. And what's crucial about that, it may seem like, you know, a minor detail, but it's because this is a story of a woman who has no time for herself. She has oodles of time by herself Mm -hmm. more than she wants. But how many of those moments are for herself? We say, see very few of them. And this is an incredibly sad and exhausting film, not because of its length or because of its aesthetic, but it's because of the picture of a woman who is caring. All she does is care for others, specifically her son. Yes. And never receives care back. 
And so it's not that there is, there's necessarily something wrong with sacrificing yourself in this way, but a human being can't only do that. They cannot sustain that. You need some love in return. She's not getting it from her, her son who, you know, you just want to strangle in this movie, right? And she's not getting it from her male clients. That is purely business. Mm -hmm. Um, Even a letter she gets from her sister that she reads, it's meaningful to her, but this letter comes from Canada from across the ocean, it is not sustaining her. It's not providing true care. And so you're seeing a person completely abandoned um, and trying to keep up her routines despite this. And eventually, as as the third day comes about faltering in that effort. So this is incredibly suspenseful in a way that, you know, you wouldn't maybe expect or describe usually with the term suspenseful, but maybe it's just, you know, slow cinema is working for me more and more the older I get, Adam. And so I did not find this a a chore at all. I found it, I found it to be a masterpiece. I mean, we've got another masterpiece on our hands here with this marathon after Maya Darren, right? Yeah, we do. And everybody talks about Orson Welles being 25 years old when he made Citizen Kane. It's just astounding to watch John Dielman and realize that Chantal Ackerman was 25 when she made Mm. this movie. It doesn't have the bravura or the brashness that Kane has. I think it has the boldness, though. I think it has the boldness. boldness for sure. Let me get there. Beyond the exactness of it, there is... I would say an undeniable elegance still to the look. I think of Seyrig's robes and the production design of the rooms and the greens and the browns. There's a kind of sameness. There's a kind of sterility, but also a symmetry and a style that is very pleasing here. And there is absolutely, you said boldness, I would say an artistic assurance and confidence. There's an obvious grasp of the form and a trust in her audience as well. And the biggest thing for me when I think about her being 25 is the wisdom in her perspective as a filmmaker, because she's telling a story that is all about specificity. This is Jean Dielman's story. But how many Jean Dielmans are there? The same age, the same generation, Mm -hmm. the same struggles in Brussels, in Europe, in the world. So this is not, on one hand, Chantel Ackerman's story. But on the other hand, of course it is, because she grew up with these women. She Mm. observed these women and observes them now. And In some ways, of course, this is the story of all women, Josh. And I'm going to give you a very counterintuitive, but I think appropriate potential double feature. See if you can place the movie quote. I'm disciplined and organized. I use habit and routine to make my life possible. Oh, is this trivia spotting? I mean, it is. We don't put people on the spot like this for trivia spotting. No, I'm going to know it as soon as you say it, but go ahead. Leonard Shelby, of course, in Memento, there you go. describing his daily existence. But how perfectly does that apply to Jean Dielman as yeah. well? What we see over three hours plus is her discipline, her organization, all the habits and all the routines she uses to make her life possible. And then, of course, we see those habits and those routines break down and the consequences that follow as a result. The trick of this movie is that Ackerman's formal precision connects us so closely to Jean's routine and to her psyche that every action and every detail, as you said, Josh, carries weight. And there is genuine suspense. There's the element of surprise because you're either waiting for something to happen the same way it occurred the day before, or you're recognizing that something seems off Mm -hmm. before you get there, which means that we, like Jean, 
are untethered. We are going to discover. We're going to witness something new. And it's like we're walking a high wire despite barely ever leaving the Dealman apartment. On day one, when she's cooking dinner, or I should say she's already prepared it and it's on the stove, she's got it simmering and it's timed so perfectly, right? So she can finish just when the client leaves. Mm -hmm. Shortly after the son's going to come home, right on cue, she's going to be there to greet him and take his coat and give him kisses. And then dinner's going to be ready. And we never see a timepiece of any kind in this movie until near the very end. Yet Jean Dielman is like a Swiss watch. I was actually shocked when we see her set her alarm clock to go to bed at night. <laughs> I don't think we hear it go off. Maybe we do. But it's like, how could she possibly need it? She's got such an internal clock driving every single thing she does. And one of our listeners, Matt White from Indy, wrote in and said that he saw this movie five years ago. So to the suspense point, but I will never forget the feeling I had the first time she left the lid off that pot. That's the type of suspense that you get with Jean Dielman. Well, why does she have that precision? And and. That moment where she manages to boil the water precisely while she's with the client, that, that yeah. is just, that's like, there aren't a ton of laughs in the movie, but that is definitely a one couple. of them because yeah. it's a, it's a great sort of example of, of domestic multitasking. I mean, anyone mm -hmm. who has any sort of domestic responsibility knows the feeling of trying to juggle enough tiny tasks. So you accomplish more than one at one time. Hers just happens to be being with the client, but yeah, why, why is she that precise? Because this is how she's defined. This is all her mm -hmm. life has become. These tasks and accomplishing them is what is giving her life meaning. Not really, yes. you know, I guess partially by her own choice, but just the fact that she is, you know, is, has these clients also suggests that she she to make ends meet. You know, th this is not um, a socialite we're watching here. And so this has come to define her is, and if her day gets off course, that means she's off course. And the movie, you know, somewhat takes that literally. Now you were circling around what I think is a crucial question, Adam, for this movie. Is Jean supposed to stand in for all women who are in domestic situations, or is she supposed to be this particular woman? And that's- She can be and, both. And well, of course she can be both. And, and that's probably she why is. this is a masterpiece, right? Yes. But it's interesting having holding those two things in your head as you're watching this, because the biographical details are pretty vague, right? I didn't even know Sylvain was her son until it kind of became explicit. At first I thought, is this her husband? Um, you know, the, It's hard to read. It's hard to but read. But the way she puts him in his place with that line, no reading at the table, you're like, she, yeah. okay, could be your husband. She, exactly. You never totally. know. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and, but she gives, you know, this, that point poignant monologue when he talks to her at bedtime and lets out a few biographical details, says mm -hmm. the very crucial thing about, I really wanted a life of my own and a child when she's discussing her past. Also kind of makes a throwaway comment about sex essentially being, I think, what does she say? A minor detail? <laughs> it's just another, another detail. Another detail, yep. which, which helps to explain like, you know, where her clients are in her life. Totally. That's why it yes. is another task. Yep. So you get those moments but even Sirig's performance, it's not really psychologically revealing. It's more about the things you were mentioning. These, It's a mastery of exacting gestures and when to alter them and what she's communicating through them. But yet she also has that great moment, another moment to herself, when she stops at a cafe for a cup of coffee, her regular table, we're given the impression, and she just sits pensively facing the camera. And Sirig does something here, you know, which only great actors can do is allow their face to go blank in a way that isn't boring, mm -hmm. but lets us cast our own feelings about her life and maybe then our own lives onto that face. And, and that's what's happening in that scene. So, so I do think, you know, 
the fact that she's allowing us to do that also makes Jean register mostly as a symbol. I, but I think that's good. I think that's why it has lasted as this landmark feminist work, because it can capture these moods that are universal, but also place them in this specific woman's, not only in, in her day, but in her specific minute that we've come to know intimately. One of the sly jokes in the movie for me, you said there aren't that many moments of levity, and maybe it wasn't intended this way, but I couldn't help but laugh when Sylvain is talking to her at bedtime, and he goes off in this rambling thing about how he hated his father back when he was a kid because he learned about sex Mm -hmm. and was imagining his father thrusting inside of his mother. And that just tore him up. And her line is something like, you shouldn't have worried. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to go back to what you were saying about maybe standing in a little bit for all women. What we understand about her and her psyche from watching her routine is we do recognize, you nailed it, how everything she does is functional. There's no extravagance. There's no luxury. It's all utilitarian. And it's primarily, almost exclusively, in someone else's service. Mm -hmm. So from the preparation of dinner to shining shoes, yes, the prostitution too, because it's to earn money, it's all tied to her identity as a mother, just as it was tied to her identity as a mother and wife probably before she was widowed. We can imagine she was in a pretty similar routine to this and has been engaged in this practice for a while. And so another line that's almost tragically comic in light of all that is when she's engaging in a little bit of small talk with a shop owner. I think it's the butcher. And he asks about her son and she just kind of offers this throwaway line. She says, what would I do without him? And I had to note, well, nothing. Everything she does is for him, right? What would I do without him? Truly, after dinner, she turns on the radio and she starts to knit. And I was thinking, Josh, maybe this is it. After watching her on her feet all day. Something for herself. Serving other men. It's something for herself. She gets to relax a little bit, except she doesn't because she's making a sweater that's going to be for him. She's sizing on him. When she drinks tea and talk about multitasking, she drinks tea and shines shoes for him to wear that day. When she drinks coffee, standing up, because she's always in motion and thinking about that next task. Even her bath, right? You think of baths as these opportunities for some comfort, Relax. for some relaxation. Yeah. She's not lying back ever. She's hunched forward. She's washing herself. She gets out. That's it. Again, purely functional. The bath has a purpose, nothing more. And in general, nothing is wasted with her. You get a little bit of sense of her frugality in this too, that she shuts off every light. Right. As soon as she exits a room. Yes. And when she leaves one on for a second, then, of course, that clues you in to something subconsciously off with Jean Dielman. I think, too, even a little subtle things too, Josh, like and it's not a frugality thing so much, but it just shows how she doesn't waste anything or any effort when she sets the tablecloth on this table that her husband used to sit at, too. Obviously, she only sets it halfway. Because only two people are going to sit there. Mm -hmm. So she can move that piece of china over or whatever and just fill half the table because she's going to end up picking it up anyway. And even you start paying attention to things like the disparity in her plate versus her son's. How much food she loads onto her growing boy's plate and she takes only a couple bits of the beef and a few potatoes, whereas he gets five or six. And then, of course, she eats everything on her plate. As I recall, he wastes a bunch of it, like no regard whatsoever, really, for the work that she has put in. So Ackerman's achievement is that movies are too often reserved for stories of grand sacrifices, 
male ones typically. And I think Jean Dielman grants epic status, finally, to the everyday sacrifices of women. That's what we see. Yeah, but it's a tragedy on that count as it well, is. because it's not a, uh, it, this is not a heroic sacrifice. And one thing we could talk about, I mean, you know, Sylvain, played by Jan de Court, is a monster like that is partly made, right? And so it's interesting that you talk about what might Jean's life have been like before her husband died and, and how she probably was going through very similar routines. And so this is a this is a kid who was raised probably since he was a baby this way, having everything given to him. Um, so partly, you know, when he comes to adulthood, he can choose to reject that and be a better person. But yeah, it's it's something of a cycle probably is what we're seeing here. But it doesn't make it any less tragic for her, especially as things go on and we start to see her spiral. And then the question of something like depression comes into play. And, and are there other things going on here um, that maybe aren't being explicitly talked about? You mentioned the lighting, how she turns the lights on and off entering a room. That's part of the, uh, the formal aesthetic starkness too, mm -hmm. right? That's the only lighting we get. So if that stationary yes. camera is in a room and Jean leaves it and turns the light off, we sit in darkness for a second or two until Ackerman cuts to the room she's entered and she turns on that light. And I think that the stationary camera, the lack of a musical score, the whole point is, is there's nothing here to distract from or even overemphasize these chores at hand. That That is, again, where all the focus is going to be. Another thing that's really remarkable about Sirig's performance is we don't get close to her face very no, often yep. at all. I mean, I talked about her looking into the camera at that coffee shop. That's that's from like a medium shot, right? We're mm -hmm. not we're not in there. So Ackerman is not even emphasizing the human emotions registering on this face in a way that, you know, we talked about with the nest that we see with Carrie Coon and Jude Law getting those close-ups. That's not given to Sirig here, yet she still gives this, you know fully human performance of a woman in, in increasing distress. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more, but I do want to go back. I mentioned Matt White and his comment about leaving the lid off the pot and the ramifications of that. Even before that, the first discrepancy for me, and I wonder if everybody watching this film has a different moment where you think, oh, something's off, something's amiss here. But the first discrepancy for me, Josh, is when she walks out of the room after the second sexual encounter. So the first one and the second one in terms of the way Dealman handles them are exactly the same. I love the economy of it. Here's where the lighting comes into play too. She goes in the room with the client. It's light in the hallway. The door closes. When the door opens, it's dark now in the hallway. This sexual liaison is treated as a matter of course. Mm -hmm. It seems perfunctory. As we said, making love just a detail. In terms of screen time, it's over literally in an instant. But that change from light to dark, which is happening around 5, 5.30, tells us that there has been some passage of time. When she walked out of the bedroom on the first day, I noted how both she and the man looked exactly the same as they did when they went in. Completely put back together, everything in place, no trouble at all, moving about your day, moving about your life as if nothing of any consequence occurred behind that door. No one would be any the wiser. Mm -hmm. When she emerges from the bedroom on day two, her hair is disheveled. And it's still that way when her son comes home. He remarks he on, comments it. on yeah. it. Yeah, he does. And you know the moment she walks out that door with her hair awry that something is off. Mm -hmm. And that's, for me, when maybe the, the downward spiral kind of really initiates. Did the potatoes even overcook? Because 
something unusual, something atypical occurred in the bedroom that made that appointment go a little bit too long? Did it somehow affect the timing of everything that followed? Like those are the things, those are the details that we're paying attention to when you watch this movie. Well, and it goes back to the fact that this is the meaning of her life. So it shouldn't matter, you know, that that she's, I think she's like short on potatoes, right? And has to go out and buy some and then they get overcooked and then the, the timing is all off. It shouldn't be that big a deal. But because she yes. lives a life where that defines her, it, it becomes all consuming that things are off just a little bit. And it becomes, you know, frightening to watch her kind of go into this slow panic when things start to unravel. Now, I don't know, you know, this is from 75, if we want to dance around spoilers, but I would like to discuss the ending. Yeah. Can we get there in a second? I yeah, want to yeah. talk a little bit more about her performance, but I absolutely oh, yeah. intended to talk about the ending. Good, because Because I want to. Yeah. I really want to hear your take on it and maybe your defense of it because I'm struggling with it okay. a little bit. But first, you were talking about close-ups and talking about her performance. And I was thinking about, I've talked about this a few times, and if anyone out there went to film school, they probably studied the cool shop effect. This idea where you draw a conclusion about someone's psychology, their wants, their needs based off of the juxtaposition of two images. And I don't know why it is what it says about my psychology, Josh, that I always think about a cake example. But if you show my face expressionless cut to a piece of cake and then you cut back to me and I'm still expressionless. We all as viewers kind of assume that, well, I must be hungry for that piece of cake, right? Well, here, of course, you don't get those types of cuts in this movie because it is often this very static camera, but we're still in a way, in a weird way, drawing Kuleshov-like conclusions where we're making assumptions and we're imposing our own reading from the juxtaposition, not of two images, but of her expression or lack thereof, and her actions. Jean Dielman doesn't tell us her emotional state ever verbally. Ackerman doesn't really reveal her emotional state or explain any of her behavior. She just gives us the action. And you watch that performance, and it's almost tempting to call it in some ways not acting, just because it's so not traditional acting. Mm -hmm. it's, it's free of emoting, it's just existing on camera. That's a little like what you see in Brisson, right? Yeah, exactly. And you realize actually how difficult that must actually be. And it also makes you think about how much work and how manipulative, perhaps, to some filmmakers they view it this way, how manipulative close-ups can be. I had the same thought, Josh, because we have to work harder to read her because we are kept at a distance. But what do we see in those actions? The first day she's peeling potatoes seems to be with purpose. Seems to be no clumsiness at all. Yes. Another time she peels potatoes, there's small pauses. There's some sighing. There's heavier breathing. You can read her disillusionment in those, again, small betrayals of her subconscious. So it's, it's a fascinating formal experiment, obviously, and a highly successful one. And I do think we have to acknowledge just how effortless Sayrig's performance seems to be, but how much work she's truly doing on screen. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's on the morning of the third day where you do notice that her movements definitely have less purpose. Yeah. And it's more like she's performing these tasks now out of obligation, right? And, and that's the day that does go on to be a very dark one. Yeah. And that day too, another great camera moment, another subtle but provocative camera move, not so much a move, it's a composition, it's framing. On day two, 
we watch the dinner unfold from a completely different perspective than we did on day one. Before, we're watching more head-on, looking at Jean with Savan on the side. And on day two, when things have unraveled a bit, it's now more at the head of the table where presumably her husband might have been. And we now see the expanse of the room behind them in the shot, except it's not an expanse. It feels so confined. Mm -hmm. It feels so claustrophobic. You feel like the walls are closing in on her in that moment. So the ending. Yeah. All right. Let's take a spoiler alert moment here, because I really do think um, if listeners haven't seen this and we're prompting them to watch it, uh, they will not want to know this going in. So stop here if you have yet to check out Jean Dealman. Please do. And then, yeah, come back and listen to this little bit of spoiler talk that we're going to do. Came out of nowhere for me. Um, yeah. Did not see it coming. And I will admit, Adam, that I don't know how I feel about movies. I've probably complained about movies that have done this on the show before. None, no titles are coming to mind. But movies that are intentionally without incident for yes. the entirety of their running time that suddenly climax... <sighs> With a That's major it. incident, right? Mm -hmm. And the incident here is that her third client comes in. We follow them into the bedroom this time. So a complete break in the pattern that we've seen. And after they've consummated the act, which seems torturous to Jean, she's getting dressed. The man is laying on the bed and she just comes from out of the frame with the scissors, stabs him. We're to assume kills him. Movie ends with her going back to that kitchen table, sitting there. Another pensive, somewhat blank-faced scene, you could say, although I mm -hmm. read a lot of a lot of despair into that moment by herself, and that's where the movie ends. I guess to me, Adam, despite that reservation where as soon as she stabbed him, I was like, my instinct was like, no, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, like the, you had sustained this perfect form for so long. I think long. I gasped. I why think I actually now? let out the no. Yeah. Like yeah. why now? But in retrospect, and as she's sitting at the table, it sort of seemed inevitable. Yeah, I had that word here too. Yep. And and in that way, I think I think it does work. I don't know that Jean Dielman needs that, you know, to be as masterful of a movie as it is, but I also don't think that that choice by Ackerman, I don't think it necessarily elevates it, I should say, but I don't think it takes away from it either. Yeah, so it sounds like we went through the exact same thought process, had the exact same experience with this movie and the ending because Pretty early on, I think it's inevitable that as a viewer, you start thinking, okay, how is this going to end? How is this narrative, a film that seems largely to be absent a narrative, going to finally conclude? And can it end with some kind of dramatic grand gesture? I'm sure you considered, well, maybe she's going to kill herself. Maybe she'll commit suicide. Or is it going to go... The opposite. Is it going to stay true to the movie it seems to be? And it is going to eschew that. And it's going to stick to the monotony, the tedium, and the struggle. Because, yeah, isn't that kind of the point of the film and of plenty of art that life is living with struggle? It's Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, getting knocked back down, doing it again the next day. I couldn't wait. There was more suspense in that, too, Josh. I couldn't wait to see what Ackerman was going to do. But I had convinced myself that she wasn't going to do something drastic mm. or dramatic. And I was and am here at this point, only about 24 hours removed, a little bit disappointed that that's the route she took. There is an inevitability to it, I suppose, that she would snap. But 
it does seem to, in some ways, contradict what the entire film was predicated on. I also wonder, and I would love to hear the perspective of all of our listeners, especially women who have seen this film and adore this film. It made me feel like it, for lack of a better phrase, gilds the lily in a sense, and that it takes something, this movie, that was already so implicitly, perhaps explicitly feminist, and in that moment makes it maybe unnecessarily pointedly so. It then it then makes it an attack on men, literally, that the whole film for me was already an indictment of of a patriarchal society that in that moment I didn't know that I necessarily needed Ackerman to go there. But that's secondary to the other point we were both making. So I'm still struggling with that. Ending, yeah. But I agree with you that that by the time we then sit with her for however many minutes it is and that final silent shot, it's not like I was holding any grudges at that point. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I get that. And I guess for me, I didn't take it as necessarily making the movie more feminist because it, you know, it doesn't necessarily feminism doesn't necessarily have to mean anti-men. Um, of course. But I, but I do, I guess for me, this film got so increasingly harrowing on that last day that it did feel like it was moving toward violence of some sort. And I also started to see it more and more. We get a couple of moments, at least two, I think, of Jean just sitting in a chair mm -hmm. and doing the opposite of what we've ever seen her do, which is nothing, right? Right. And and, and sort of the cloud. I began to, I began yeah. to really think of this as more a portrait of depression, and mm -hmm. not to say that violence always has to be a part of that, but to see her being pushed in ways that she had not been pushed before. And that for as much as this movie was a chronicling of how every day has always been the same for John Dielman, it was also moving towards a chronicling of the day that was different and was different in a violent, tragic, mm -hmm. and harrowing way. And I guess that's where I come back to the inevitability and, and would say that it isn't an exclamation point that, again, the movie necessarily needed, but I think it fits the movie that we have. Well, I think there's another thing, too, that's worth discussing, that that violent act does follow that sexual encounter. And it is the only one that we witnessed because there is kind of two things at play with this movie. We talked about how she says in the movie up to that point treats sex as if it's just a detail. And it is, to your point, Josh, earlier, no different than peeling potatoes or anything else she does. But you have to also acknowledge that these three days in the life of Jean Dielman aren't built around her waking up in the morning and going to sleep. The days start and the movie ends with those sexual encounters. I mean, basically, it's right before those. Mm -hmm. It's that five o'clock kind of hour yeah. that we open the film with and obviously we end the film with. So the movie is built around that. The day two session I already mentioned where she comes out looking a little bit wild to me is a really key moment in the film. And the discussion about gender roles and sex is there as a textual element in the film, albeit a minor one. There's discussion even in that letter, which you mentioned the letter she gets from her sister. And I love even how she reads the letter. She reads it like a robot. There's no no emotion whatsoever. It's just another thing to get through. It's another thing that she sort of has to do. She sees it maybe as even entertaining her son, who could not care less, but all her sister can really focus on is how she needs a man, right? So that, that element is there. Here's what really struck me. That ending where I agree with you, <laughs> there's nothing about that sexual event that seems anything less than torturous. Mm -hmm. It's awkward. 
It's weird. He mostly seems to be just laying on top of her, almost sleeping most of the time. But Josh, I did some Google searches around this just to see if I was crazy and see maybe what the ambiguity was with the end of the film. And I came across plenty of readings of the ending of that film that say she very clearly is climaxing in that moment. And I don't know what to Hmm. do with that information, if anything. But again, I'm at least trying to set a pattern and think it's worth discussing that even though Jean Dielman, the character, suggests that sex is just a detail. Ackerman gives it a lot more weight. And I wonder what we're supposed to read into, if anything, the the end of the film and that act and what perhaps precipitates it. Yeah, that's for sure. The movie takes sex way more seriously than Jean at least professes to. If that's what's happening with her in uh, that final scene, she is not enjoying it, which, you know, is is a possibility, I suppose. Uh, That was one of the more harrowing moments in the film because she's in such Mm -hmm. complete distress and I think is completely connected with the action that she takes afterwards with the scissors. I mean, we don't, we cannot say how different this encounter with this client is compared to our other encounters. We have the evidence you mentioned where she comes out of the one room looking all put together, the other time disheveled. And this time um, she comes out of the room covered in blood, you know? So we have those distinctions, but we don't know if this is how it, goes with all her clients, if this was particularly violent for her in some way, but it it is definitely not. My reading is that this was deeply, deeply distressing to her, this encounter and, and, and really key to precipitating to her decision with the scissors. So yeah, I guess that's, that's all I'd add there. Yeah. Well, it's a movie. And it's a moment, an ending, certainly, that demands scrutiny. Jean Dielman is available to rent on demand. It's also playing on the Criterion channel. You may also be able to find it at your local library or through interlibrary loan. Next up, Josh, we have Barbara Loden's Wanda. I have not looked at the runtime. I don't think it's over three hours. That is coming in just a couple of weeks. You can find our full lineup and our past reviews at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, this is not a three-hour show. And it's the end of the show.